So first, I've got to tell you, that short video clip we saw a few minutes ago was the best presidential campaign piece I've seen in months. And some of you guys should be running. Secondly, somebody gave me this flower a minute ago, which is about the girliest thing that's ever happened to me, so I'm kind of pleased. And third, like, headsets, mics are inherently sexist. Look at this. I've got to, like, dangle this off my belt. That's weird. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Finally, it's always weird when you hear an introduction of yourself. And listening to that, I'm like, oh, you know, I sound like a kind of a good Christian girl. Um, you know, maybe been doing some good things for the Lord in various ways. But I, I said this to the, the women's conference at my church that I spoke at a couple of years ago. And people laugh, but I mean it very seriously. I could tell you the story of my Christian life in a way where you'd be like, yeah, good Christian woman, isn't that great? And I could tell you the story of my Christian life in a way where you'd say, I don't know why they even let her in this room, let alone go for a microphone. So do not be fooled by anybody's bio. We're all wretched sinners before the Lord. I want you to think for a minute of the friend with whom you most often laugh. It may, it may not be your closest friend, but the friend who just brings out the giggles in you to where you find yourself like incapable of speaking because you are laughing so much. So think of that friend for a second. That friend for me is a dear friend of mine named Kathleen. And last summer, I went for a delightful walk down the river with my friend. And it was particularly delightful because in the previous few years that I've been close to Kathleen, I'd walked with her through some really hard things. She had experienced in particular a broken engagement that had been quite devastating to her. And she navigated all the usual ups and downs that we can go through. But she was one of those people who, even in the midst of just hard things, always seemed to be able to put a smile on her face and to make me laugh. And it was delightful to walk with Kathleen that day because all the things that she had been finding hard over the previous few years were coming right. My friend had a job that she loved. My friend had come to a point of being actually very contented in singleness. But then she'd also started dating this guy who she'd known for years, who was just the sweetest, like, puppy dog of guy you could wish to meet. And I was so happy for them to be together, and she was telling me they were talking about getting engaged. And I came home from that walk, and I said to my husband, how delightful it had been to see my joy-giving friend just so happy. It was Thursday night. On Sunday morning, I woke up to an email from my pastor, which he'd sent to a few of Kathleen's close friends, because walking home from seeing some other friends on Saturday night, Kathleen had been assaulted and mugged. She had been left in a dark alley on the ground with serious head injuries in a pool of her own blood. I went to the hospital that day, and I was told that she was still like so severely ill that she was effectively unconscious she had probably lost one of her eyes it was unclear if she had brain damage I went back to the hospital later that day and my friend was still basically unconscious and unable to see people I went back to the hospital the next day and her dad had been able to fly up from Texas to be with her, his daughter and as I was talking with her dad in the hospital waiting room he said to me I'm so glad that you're here because you're the person I want Kathleen to talk to when she comes round and is able to talk about this. He said, I want you to tell her that really God was protecting her that night. 
Because if she hadn't been on the phone to her boyfriend when this happened, he wouldn't have been able to call the emergency services. And if some other person hadn't randomly happened to walk down the same dark alley at that late hour of the night and seen her lying in a pool of blood on the floor, he wouldn't have been able to call the ambulance and she may have bled out and died then. He said, you can tell her that God was protecting her that night. I so admired and appreciated my friend's dad's faith. But I knew I could not look into my friend's one remaining eye and tell her what he'd asked me to tell her. Because if God had been protecting her that night, he could have stopped that man assaulting her in the first place. The question we are wrestling with this morning is where is God when we suffer? Now this is a very erudite college where you guys care about learning and philosophy and my guess is that in your philosophy classes you have been exposed to some of the arguments that Christian philosophers have made over the last 2,000 years concerning this troubling question, how can we believe in a loving God who is also powerful when we see so much suffering in the world and when we see so much suffering even in our own lives? And there are many ways in which philosophers have sought to address these questions and actually, I think, quite satisfying and intellectual answers. That even in circumstances where we cannot see how God might have a reason in the suffering that he allows, that doesn't mean there isn't a reason. But this morning, rather than pursuing any of those philosophical lines of argument, I want to walk with you through the story that has most helped me personally at times when I have encountered suffering in my own life or when I've walked through suffering in the lives of others. It's a story that is told to us in John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, do turn with me to John chapter 11. I'm going to start reading at the beginning. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified. What do we learn in those first few verses about Jesus' relationship with this family? We learn that this was Mary, who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother was ill. We learn that Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves, who's ill. And then in verse 5, we're reminded again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you see how shocking that verse is? So Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so he came right away? That would make some sense to us. Or if it said, well, Jesus didn't really care about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he was busy with other things, so he didn't come. But Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so he didn't come. You can imagine Mary and Martha, their sister's sick, but good news, they know the greatest healer in town. And so they dial 911 for Jesus, and he doesn't come. What's more, we know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus didn't even need to come to save Lazarus. Jesus can heal people at a distance just with his words. And yet he doesn't come. A few years ago, I was walking myself through a period of pretty intense emotional suffering. And nothing cataclysmic had happened, nobody had died. But I had experienced the pain of a broken relationship that had been particularly devastating to me. As Professor Halverson mentioned, I'm English, so I don't really cry very much. But my husband, who had known me for 10 years at that point, he saw me cry more in the space of a week than he'd seen me cry in the space of the previous decade. And we we developed this always ritual that he would come home from work, we'd put the kids to bed, and then I would sit on the couch and I would cry. My poor husband didn't really know what to do with this. I mean, he's an engineer as well, you know, so English and that is sort of tricky. But, but being a good Christian man, he sat down on the couch with me one night and he opened up his Bible and he started reading from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I just cried more. I appreciate you laughing at my sorrow. It's very, <laughs> very empathetic folk here. And I said to my husband, I feel like I am crying out to the Lord and he is not helping me. Now, if you have been a Christian for very long, you will have experienced those moments when you feel like you are crying out to the Lord and he is not helping you. Let's read on our story. We're going to pick up from verse 17. And when Jesus finally came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Do you hear the reproach in Martha's voice to begin with? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But then do you see this woman's faith? Even now, even though Lazarus is dead and buried, she believes that Jesus can still heal him. 
And how does Jesus respond? Your brother will rise again. Now Martha is one of the Jews at the time who believes in the resurrection. She believes that there will be a future day when God will bring his people back to life. She has the theological answer and Jesus gives it to her. Your brother will rise again. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But you can almost hear her heart crying out, what about now, Jesus? What about now? Why won't you help me now? And Jesus looks into the eyes of this grieving woman and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus looks into this grieving woman's eyes and he says, you think that what you most need is your brother back. But what you most need is me. I am the resurrection and the life. It's easy for us sometimes to see Jesus as a means to an end. And even to see prayer as a means to an end. We have circumstances that we hate and we cry out to the Lord to change our circumstances. Sometimes we can almost treat God like a a vending machine. We put in the prayer and we expect the answer to drop out. But Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is not there to fix our circumstances. Our circumstances are there to press us, to prompt us, to push us, to cry out to him. Jesus looks this devastated woman in the eyes and tells her that he is her life. And she replies in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So what about Mary? When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see that echo of her sister's words? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest and one of the most surprising verses in the whole of the scriptures. Two words, Jesus wept. There are two responses to this 
from the onlookers. So the Jews said, some of them, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you see the tension there? Because Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he is weeping at Lazarus' grave. He is crying with his friends. But this is the Jesus who created this situation in the first place. This is the Jesus who could have healed Lazarus when Mary and Martha first called. This is Jesus who caused these tears to happen. And this is Jesus who is weeping with his friends. As we look at what the Bible has to say to us about our suffering, we cannot conclude that God doesn't care about our suffering, that our suffering doesn't matter to God. It matters enough to bring tears to the eyes of the Son of God. Jesus wept. But then the story went on. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. We believe in a man who meets us in our suffering. We believe in a man who weeps with us in our suffering. We believe in a man who draws close to us in our suffering in a profound way, as he did with Martha. We believe in a man who stands in front of us as we suffer and says, I am the resurrection and the life. But we also believe in a man who is the only human being in all of history who was able to say to a dead man who had been dead for four days and was rotting in his grave, Lazarus, come out. And the man who was dead came out. I frequently tell this story to my kids, my my nine and seven-year-old daughters, so one time we were driving past a cemetery and they said to me, Mum, isn't that the place where the dead people are? I said, yeah. And they said, she, they said that their bodies are in, in those coffins and they're rotting, that's gross. I said, don't be too superior to the dead people, you'll be like that one day. <laughs> but friends, if you and I are trusting in this man, then there will come a day when he will say to us, Come out. 
he will say to my nine-year-old one day, Miranda, come out. He will say to my seven-year-old one day, Eliza, come out. And those women who were dead will come out of their graves. We believe in a man who is so powerful that he could burst out of his own grave. We believe in a man who is the resurrection and the life. But we also believe in a man who died on a cross in physical, emotional, and spiritual agony, abandoned by his friends. There is no wound of ours he cannot touch. There is no place of suffering we can go to that he cannot reach. I can look into the remaining eye of my friend and I can't tell her that I understand what she's been through. But Jesus does. And as we find ourselves in those moments of hopeless suffering, let's look into his eyes and let him say to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this?